You know, one thing about, about God, when he comes and he tells us uh, to make an exchange, you know, it, it's not like, you know, you're going to go trade in your used car and, and, and see if you're going to get a, a good deal or not, or you're going to get fleeced. <laughs> but when he call, calls you to, to make an exchange, uh, we always come out on the top end of that exchange, don't we? We always come out on the top end of the exchange. When, when he was talking about that, I was remind, I, I was my immediately my mind went to, um, you know, when God spoke to uh, Isaiah and he says, "Come and let us reason together." And you know, how many of you ever got together with somebody and they tried tried that? Say, well, let's let's be reasonable about this, right? And you know how that always works out, right? There's always some kind of catch in your. Somehow you always end up on the losing end of that one, too. But you know, when God says, come, when he tells us to come and to reason with him, it's not like he's trying to fleece us. He says, come, let's reason together. I got a great deal for you. You give me your sin that is a scarlet, and I'll make you white as snow. You give me your sin that is like crimson, and you'll be as wool. You know, and, and that's, that's who, you know, God is, man. You know, I was reading today, and it says that we love him because he first loved us. Man, just the magnitude of that statement, if you just sat on that for a while, you realize how much God really, 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 he really loves us, man, and the extent that he went for us. Do you real, we, do we, we don't realize that the redemption of mankind through the blood of Jesus Christ was not God's plan A. Because a plan A implicates that there might be a plan B and a plan C. It was only God's only plan. It was his only plan. And that the son was willing to do it. We're going to study about righteousness today. We're going to get into really to understand the intricates of what it means when we say, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Because that's who you are today. Because of what Jesus did. And, and, it's, and it's like I said, it's not God's, he was not God's plan A. It was his only plan. Let's look, if you got your Bible, your Whatever you read your Bible with, go ahead and open that up today. We're gonna, I want to try to plow through a lot of Scripture here today. I'm either going to make reference to it or we're going to turn it. I'll read it as I have it. Um, cut and paste it to my, um, my page paper here. But we're, we'll try to get through some Scripture here. Because I think, I, not that I think, I know that the basis of what we believe, the core values that we have, not only as a house but as a believer, has to have its roots, its grounds. It has to have everything founded in the Word of God because that's, you know, that's our launching pad. That's, our, that's, that's the authority by which we make a statement that says, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Okay? And so um, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14, it says, Seeing that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. In other words, we don't, we, our high priest is touched with every infirmity. He's right down there. Jesus Christ, your high priest, is right down there, and he's right where you at, right where you live, and he has been 
touched with every infirmity. In other words, he's been approached with every infirmity that you have been touched with, every weakness that you've been touched with. But it says here, in all points was he tempted as we were, or are we are, yet he was without sin. Jesus was not Superman. It says, as we're going to read in the scriptures here, in um, let's take Romans 8.3. Let's go real quick to Romans 8.3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Philippians um, chapter 2, 7 says this. But made himself of no reputation. He didn't walk around and say, you don't know who you're talking to. Do you know who you're talking to? You ever been approached by somebody like that? Do you know who you're talking to? Well, no. But Jesus didn't walk around like that. He made himself of no reputation. There were several times in the Bible that they wanted to stone Jesus, and he slipped away from them. How do you how do you get away from, you know, several hundred people in a crowd? But he slipped away from them that wanted to kill him. But other times, too, they wanted to promote him as king. They wanted to, you know, move him, move him on and hail him as king. He slipped away from that because it, it was all about timing. It wasn't about the time. It wasn't about time. But he made himself of no reputation. But being found in the fashion of a man... You see, he humbled himself to become a man. God humbled himself to become a man. And it was all part of God's plan. You see, we're building the case of your and I's righteousness. In order for you and I to be saved, there had to be vindication of God's righteousness. Okay? When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden... They walked away from being in right standing with God or to stand right before God. And after that point, no man could ever stand right before God. That was trouble. Because if you couldn't stand right before God, it meant that you were eternally damned. That's what was hanging over each and every person, whereas we're going to continue to find out as we walk through this. They couldn't stand right before God. They stood right before God at one time. They were in. They lived in what they, you know, what dispensationalists, people that have broken the Bible down into dispensations, talked in an age of innocence. They walked in an age of total trust, total reliance upon God. They trusted every single word that He said, until one day some doubt came in, and they questioned God, and obviously they acted on the doubt, and it separated them from God. He removed them from the garden. And it says that he humbled himself, became obedient unto the death, even the death of the cross. 
Let's turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 is probably one of the greatest prophetic words in the Bible. When Jesus said, you know, as he began to weep over Israel just before his death, began to weep over him, he says, how I would have loved you, how I would have loved to gather you as a mother hen gathers its chicks, but you would not because you missed your day of visitation. See, the thing about it at that time that all the religious leaders at that time had to do is all they had to do was go to that prophecy. And one of the reasons that Jesus was so hard on them is because they knew. These guys were, these guys were, these guys were Bible scholars, man. They were law scholars. They studied the law and the prophets. They understood. And without really getting into you know, a lot of the commentary on Daniel chapter 9, because that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about eschatology. We're not talking about prophecies that have been fulfilled. We're talking about righteousness. But here, here, here it is in chapter 9 of Daniel. Daniel, Daniel understood. He did math. He, he knew, you know, he knew how to add and subtract. And he knew from the time that they moved and they were taken in captive into the land of of, of the, uh, the Babylonians, that they were going to be there for 70 years. And he was doing the math. And he started praying here in the 69th year. He knew this time was coming up. And, and the whole chapter 9, most of the chapter is about his prayer and his prayer to God about, these, about what's next. And then you, you get the discourse in there where God sends the answer and then there's a big battle over the answer because of the powerful answer that was being sent, because God was answering that prayer. And what we're going to do is read the answer to that prayer in verse 24. It says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in, everybody read it with me, everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Okay? So what it was going to do was going to do these things. It was going to finish the transgression. It was going to deal with rebellion and evil. It's going to deal with it. God was going to now deal with rebellion and evil in this answer that he was giving them. He was going to deal with rebellion and evil. I'm going to make a permanent atonement for sin. I'm going to make an end of sin. I'm going to end sin. I'm going to bring in permanent atonement. I'm going to make reconciliation for iniquity. I'm going to satisfy the penalty for sinfulness. He's giving him an answer, man. A powerful prophetic answer here. The magnitude of what we captivate and understand because we're, you know, we're looking at this hindsight. But he was giving them some powerful answers, some powerful, real, uh, uh, finite answers to that. We're going to deal with sin once and for all. We're going to deal with rebellion once and for all. We're going to impute eternal, never-ending righteousness. Is what we're going to do. 
We're going to confirm everything that the prophet saw. I'm going to confirm those things. Wow, in 70 weeks? You're going to do all that in 70 weeks? Well, obviously, those aren't literal weeks, but as I said, we're not, we're not here to break all that down. But we're going after this aspect of it right here. And the last one was to usher in the Messiah who was going to accomplish all of what I just said. Wow, what a promise. And Jesus said, if you'd have known that, you wouldn't have missed your day of visitation. You wouldn't have missed your day of visitation. Timing is everything with God. Timing is everything. The only time that Jesus allowed them to usher in and allow them to hail him, Messiah Prince, was when? On, on what we celebrate as Palm Sunday. Well, it was the fulfillment of that prophecy. As you go down and read more and more. Anyway, it is a good study. It's an exciting study. Because like I said, it, it just totally confirms everything that Jesus did. And what I want to zero in on is to impute never-ending righteousness. Righteousness that you, Jesus paid the price for is eternal righteousness, folks. It's not something that's here. We're not in the season of righteousness. Okay? It's something that is eternal. It's when Jesus paid the price, he paid the price for some powerful core values that you and I possess. Redemption, forgiveness with God, atonement for sin. All these things that we, we wrote about. Did I say justification? Justification. You know, and some of these words, you know, without looking up in the dictionary, you know, you just don't know what they mean. But we've broken them down so they're real simple to understand. Righteousness, right standing with God. Justification, justice, justifi justified never sin. Real easy to remember. That's you, you and I. We're justified. We're just as if we never sinned. Yeah, our brain can't wrap around that, but our spirits grabbed a hold of it because that's who you and I are. So, as we look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ, in him, or in Christ Jesus. All right? He hath made him, who's the him? The pronoun. Who's the him? Jesus, right? Jesus is the pronoun he's talking about. He hath made Jesus to be sin for us. He became sin for us. Okay? Who knew no sin, that we would be made the righteousness of God. You talk about a great exchange. Come on. We who had the sin exchanged it for righteousness who didn't have the sin. We exchanged that. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. <clears throat> I 
Jesus became the sin offering for us. He became the sin offering for us. He literally became sin for us. He didn't take our sin. He became sin for us. Okay? He was made a curse from God. Galatians 3.13 tells us that. And so I want to take us back in time to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 8. Let's go back to Genesis 22 and verse 8. I'm, I'm taking us somewhere, folks. I'm... Genesis 22, verse 8. This is Abraham talking to his son Isaac. know Abraham was a prophet, did you? I probably should have just left. You didn't know Abraham was a prophet, did you? And Abraham was talking to his son Isaac when he said this. Abraham said, to, said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Why did he say that to Isaac? Because Isaac was... He's seen Abraham offer sacrifices before. Man, we got the stick. We got the fire. We ain't got the offering. Dad, where's the offering? Son, God will provide himself a lamb. He was being prophetic here. He was saying God was going to provide him a lamb. He'll provide himself a lamb. He didn't say, no, son, God is going to sacrifice you. You see, it's all type and figure, right? Abraham's the father. Isaac's the son that's going to be sacrificed. He says, God will provide himself a lamb. He'll provide himself the lamb, the sin offering. Exodus 12, if you look at Exodus 12, in the instructions for the original Passover... Moses tells the people that you're to take the lamb, and he said, a lamb for every house. God will provide him a lamb, but he has a lamb for every house. You see, these guys were speaking, man, stuff that they didn't know what they were saying, really. They knew what they were saying for that moment, but they were speaking things into eternity. They were setting up. God's plan. Isn't that? I mean, they were setting God's plan up for them. God will provide us a lamb. And there'll be a lamb for every house. Jesus was being set up to become the sin offering, become, be made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness in him. Back to Genesis 22 and 14. Let's, let's go down a little further. And after everything takes place and, you know, God gives him the ram that's in the thicket. This is too cool. Abraham 
called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. As it is said of this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. What shall be seen? The lamb that God has provided to be found in the mountain. Where, where, was, where was Jesus crucified? He was crucified on a hill, right? He was crucified up in a mountain, what they considered mountains of those times. They were speaking the plan of God literally thousands of years prior to that. They were setting the stage for Jesus Christ, for Messiah Prince to come in and fulfill everything that was established. This is what he did for you and I. He had to set the scene. He had to set the table so that he could usher in everlasting righteousness. We all know that it was what? The Bible in Hebrew says it is impossible. Tell yourself, it's impossible. For the blood of lamb and of goats to redeem me. It took a lamb... That God provided. He had to provide his own sacrifice. Because there wasn't a lamb to be found. As pure and as, as, as pure and as clean as you could get. A lamb upon the face of this earth. A literal lamb. It wasn't good enough. Because it couldn't vindicate the righteousness that was lost in the garden. It couldn't vindicate it. But the blood of somebody who is totally sinless, okay, could. Jesus provided him a lamb, Jehovah Jireh. That literally means God, Jehovah, that's the name of Jehovah, right? One of the most, one of the most holiest names that they called God by, Jehovah. Jehovah has seen ahead, not only has seen ahead to provide for you, Abraham, with the ram in the thicket, but he has seen ahead to the place where Jesus comes on the scene and he's provided him a lamb. He's provided him a lamb. The Greek word for, for righteousness is dikesuna, uh, or to help me, I might be butchering that somewhere in there. The condition of acceptable to God the right to stand before him. We have the right to stand before God because of Jesus Christ. We have the right to stand before him. Not as, as one who's going to be judged and condemned or judged and reprimanded or judged and been asked how good of a person have you been for your entire life. But one that is, is going to be judged in a sense of, you received my righteousness. You received it. Enter in, man. You're part of the fold. We're going to get to that part. So, we've established the fact that God has provided the sacrifice, right? Jesus, the Lamb of God, right? That was, that was, I think we all pretty much knew that. But now, God had to have a high priest to offer the sacrifice. Equally as important. Couldn't just be any old high priest. But it had to be a high priest. We got the offering, but we don't have a high priest. Or do we? We do have a high priest. Right? Let's move on because we're going to move into that. Okay. Romans 8.25. Let's look at that. 
Romans 8.25 says this. Uh, is that the right scripture? I hope it is. Oh, it might not be the right verse, but here's the right verse because I, I cut and pasted it. I'm famous for that. Whenever I get a lot of scriptures in there, I usually do something crazy like that, give you the wrong scripture verse. All right. Romans 8.25 says, whom, I don't know if that's, that's not 8.25. Whom God hath set forth, that, that would be Jesus, set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. This is the complete Jewish Bible version of that. God put Yeshua forward as the kapora or the sin offering. For sin, through his faithfulness, in the respect to his bloody sacrificial death. This vindicated God's righteousness because in his forbearance, he had passed over with neither punishment nor remission the sins people had committed in the past. Propitiation is the act of expiation. It is a way to atone for something you did that was wrong. Expiation was the way a person could gain forgiveness from a God, from God under the law. If you've ever tried to make up for something you did wrong, then you understand the notion of expiation. Jesus basically said, I'm taking all responsibility for her wrongdoing on me. I'm taking all responsibility for his wrongdoing on me. I'm taking all responsibility for his wrongdoing on me. I'm taking all the responsibility of this guy's wrongdoing on me. I am becoming the sin offering. And basically what they did, it was an exchange. The life-giving blood, basically when they did um, when they did animal sacrifice, it was an exchange. The life-giving blood of the animal for the sin of the people. And it got, it got God to become forbearant. It got God to be tolerant. Neither did he punish the sin at the time, nor did he remit the sin at the time. Because we know God had a plan, right? It's all working to his plan. It's all in his timing. That's propitiation, folks. We have the offering, but who's the priest? Hebrews 5, 5 through 10. Let's look at that. Hebrews 5, 5 through 10. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he, had the, had, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Psalm 2, 7. As he hath also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, verse 4. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, 
he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey. Called of God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, as we're going to find out, was a priest during the time of Abraham. Melchizedek, well, let's just read it. Um, let's, let's go to um, 7, chapter 7, okay, in Hebrews. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation, everybody read it with me, king of righteousness. First being called by interpretation, king of righteousness. The king of righteousness became the high priest to offer the sacrifice. Jesus was um, lineage-wise was of the tribe of Judah. And it goes into, if you read Hebrews, you get all that dialogue. He was of the tribe of Judah. There was no place provided no provision in the law for the tribe of Judah to become priests. Absolutely none. But even if it was, it wasn't good enough. It couldn't be an earthly priest. It had to be a heavenly priest. It had to be somebody who could present the precious blood of the Lamb, the atonement for eternal righteousness before the throne of God. A human being couldn't do that. Because, number one, they couldn't stand before God with it. It had to take an eternal, it had to take a heavenly priest. And it says that Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, I propose this. I propose this because I believe that there were revelations of Jesus in the Old Covenant many, several times. I can cite three of them, okay? One of them was the, uh, the great warrior that Joshua came to. He knelt down and he worshipped it. An angel would have not tolerated being worshipped the way that Joshua worshipped him. He was the captain of the Lord's host, heavenly host. There's only one captain of the host of heaven. That's Jesus. He's the captain of the host of heaven. Okay? The other one was, I like this one. There were three Hebrew children. They refused to bow down and worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar had erected. And he says, I'm going to give you one last time. When you hear the band play, start worshiping the image. Because if you don't, I'm going I'm to burn you up in the furnace that I created that image with. And they refused to do it. It says when they took him in there, the guys that threw him in the furnace died from the heat. They got in there and asked me how the king could see inside that furnace. But he says, man, hey, hey, Joe, didn't we throw three in there? 
Yeah, we threw three in there. Well, I see four. And one of them is the likeness of the Son of Man. Who, who's the only one that has the title of the Son of Man? Jesus. How did he know that that was Jesus? He got a revelation. How can a, an ungodly, I mean, th- this guy was ruthless. If you read the history on Nebuchadnezzar, holy mackerel. You, you would just, you, you'd say, what on earth? How on earth did a guy like that get saved? How did he ever come to know God? But he did. He got a revelation. And I propose that Abraham, who was called the what of God? Father of faith, but what was he called of God? The friend of God. He's called the friend of God. I believe he ran into Jesus one day. And he called him Melchizedek. His name was Melchizedek. Of heavenly order. A priest of a heavenly order. He was not only, Jesus is what? Our king and priest. This guy was, Melchizedek was a king and priest. Huh? I mean, coincidence? I doubt it. He was king and priest. Wow. We got an offering. We got the priest. Ha ha. We got the two main ingredients to usher in eternal righteousness. We got an offering come from heaven, and we got a priest who come from heaven. And that's how much God loved us. He ordained that for us. He put together that complex plan for you and I. The devil did everything in his revelation power, that is, the revelation of what he had at that time, to stop it. But he couldn't. You know what the, the, the book of Corinthians says? It says, if the enemy or the devil would have known what he was doing, he was playing right into God's hands. You ever watch those kind of movies, man? How, how the whole plot and, the, and the, the, you know, the villain plays right into the good guy's hands. Well, that's what he did. He played right into God's hands. I needed, pardon the word I use, he needed somebody stupid enough to be willing to kill the very sacrifice that was going to redeem mankind. And isn't it ironic that he used the very person that duped mankind into giving it away? That's just like God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. All right, so let's finish this up. How do you and I connect with that? How does that become our righteousness, okay? How does that become our unrighteousness? All right, we'll finish that up with this. Okay, <clears throat> Romans, let's look at Romans 4. I got a couple more scriptures. <clears throat> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speed read, okay? Okay, what shall we say then? that per Abraham our father as 
pertaining to the flesh hath found. Abraham found something, okay? For if Abraham were justified by works, he would have whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. I think we all understand that, right? If it was reckoned by our works, then we would be all told to do the works to become righteous. Because you earned it. But it's not that. What Abraham found was something different. And I would propose that he was probably one of the first people to find that. Okay? You've got to understand the time Abraham lived before the law, right? But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for what? Remember that the next time you're feeling unrighteous, okay? It's not by your works, and we all know that. Saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to him whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of of the circumcision, the seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham received righteousness by faith. Which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe. Though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. So he did it outside of circumcision to show that the circumcised and the uncircumcised through faith can receive righteousness, imputed righteousness as they believe. Okay? Way back in the time before the law, before obviously the new covenant, God had already established that all mankind could get in and not just one group of people. He did that in Abraham. Okay? Now, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had yet being uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of of faith. You mean Abraham became righteous through faith, by grace, or by grace through faith? How can that be? Jesus hadn't even died yet. Well, guess what? God can do whatever He wants, right? (laughs) He can do whatever He wants. And He was establishing the pattern that you and I were going to follow. That's what He was doing. He was just establishing the pattern of beforehand. Because he knew there were going to be people like the people that Jesus dealt with. You know, the lawyers and the 
the, the Pharisees. And he knew that there were going to be all kinds of religious people in the times that we live in. So he did it back before all that. All right. Okay. For if they which were of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath, but there where no law is, there is no transgression. Right? Where there's no law, there is no transgression. Where there is no law, there's no transgression. There's no law. Okay, before they said, you know, thou shalt not kill, there was no transgression. It became a transgression when you found out that thou shalt not kill and the penalty for killing under the law. Okay? All right. Okay. So let's talk about this, this word imputed. It says that Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. What does that mean? The act of imputation is simply the charging of one with something. It denotes just what it mean, what we mean by our ordinary use of the term. It does not change the inward state or character of the person to whom something is imputed. When, for example, we say that we impute bad motives to anyone, we do not mean that we make such a person, uh, such a one, bad. And just so in the Scripture, the phrase to impute iniquity does not mean to make one personally bad, but simply to lay iniquity to his charge. Okay? Adam and Eve sinned. At that moment, that sin became imputed to everybody in this room when you were born. Doesn't mean you committed the sin. Doesn't even mean at that moment you were a bad person. But it means that that sin has been put to your charge. Okay? That's the negative part of that. Now let's look at the positive part of that because it works. That's how it works with righteousness. You see? It's imputed in the same way. Okay? Let's, let's, let's go on. Hence, when God said to impute sin to anyone, the meaning is that God accounts such as one to be a sinner and consequently guilty and liable to be punished. Similarly, the non-imputation of sin means simply not to lay it to one's charge as a ground of punishment. In the same manner, when God said to impute righteousness to a person, the meaning is that he judicially accounts such a one to be righteous and entitled to all the rewards of a righteous person. Hallelujah. We have the sacrifice. We have the priest. It was taken care of. And I received my righteousness by believing that Jesus Christ paid for my sin. And as a result of me, him being the sacrificial lamb for me, he was the sin offering for me. He imputed all of the rewards of being righteous to me. Just like Adam imputed all of the punishment to me. But Jesus took care of all that. That's what it means to be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. There was an elaborate, very sophisticated plan 
laid out to establish that. There were no loopholes. There was nothing that could be challenged in it because Jesus, when he died, it says he went to hell, set the captivities captive, but he also took the blood as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He took it to the place in heaven. He took it to the throne room of heaven. He took it to the mercy seat in heaven, and he sprinkled that blood once and for all on that mercy seat that, so that every mankind... Every person, every all mankind, this is not every mankind, but all mankind could celebrate being the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus if they believed. That's it, folks. That's it. That's it. And no man could do that. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's stand together. The Bible talks about putting on a cloak of righteousness. Amen. That we have the breastplate of righteousness, the Bible says, in our armament. The breastplate of righteousness belongs to us. It guards our heart. Hallelujah. And so, Father, we just, we, we just stand here as, as people, Lord, knowing that you paid such an awesome price, and that you did it for us, that, Father God, that, that hopefully, if anybody had any doubt of their righteousness, that that whole that whole issue has been laid to rest tonight. And that every believer needs to know that a part of their identity and who they are in Christ is that in Him you are the righteousness of God. It's imputed to you. It's imputed to you through faith in Jesus Christ. not by works. That's the thing that Abraham found. That's what made him the friend of God. He understood what faith, what faith in God brought him into. And it's the same thing it brings us into. So, Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord God, that as these issues are settled, Father, it is Lord God, it is a powerful word, powerful good news to, to Lord, to share with others. Because, Lord, there's a world out there that, that really believes if, if, they're, if they're, they just do good things, everything's going to be fine. And, and we, we, we realize that it's, it's not. It's not going to be fine. But they just simply have to believe that Jesus Christ became their kapoor, became their sin offering. He became the high priest. And he's the one that imputes righteousness. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Amen. All right, everybody have a great, great weekend. Amen. Hopefully this has kind of helped you to understand what it means to be righteous in God. Amen. Hallelujah. Good deal. Thank you.